0: On the one hand, he seemed to have it all, power, prestige, great wealth, fame. But on the other hand, he was a tortured soul because you see it was all slipping away and he didn't know what to do. It haunted him as he lay in bed trying to fall asleep. You know that feeling where you got something that's that great gray cloud and then you finally fall asleep and you turn over and wake up and. There it is again. During those slow moments of the day, you've forgotten it for a while, you're moving on, and then things slow down, and suddenly it pops back into your head. He'd had a friend who told him, hey, man, if you have a problem that money can fix, you ain't got a problem. But he had a problem. All of his connections, all of his fame, all of his power, all of his money couldn't fix it he had the ultimate god sized problem and to make matters all the worse he didn't even know god and we pick up his story in the old testament in a book called second kings in the 5th chapter I hope you treat your Bible as a life textbook, not just reading the verses that we're gonna put up on the screen, but marking it up either digitally or or in the paper Bible. And if you haven't already got it, I encourage you to pull up this text here. If you're brand new at following Jesus and the Bible and all that, as I'm sure many of you are, uh, just use that table of contents. God put it in there for a purpose and uh, find 2 Kings chapter five, and we're gonna take a look at this guy's story. It's a story about a dirty river, a reluctant obedience, and an amazing miracle. And it starts out with this guy's dilemma. We pick it up in verse one. Nahum, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, the king, and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he had leprosy. So what we've got here is a, a, a Syrian general, and, and if you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home like I did in Sunday school classes and all that, you maybe know the story of Naam. And uh, it was always the story of Nahum. And, and really, to those who read it in the original text, it wasn't the story of Nahum, it was the story of a Syrian general. You see, Syria was one of the arch enemies of Israel. Uh, they were next door, so there were always these border skirmishes, and one would take over land, and the other would take over land. And, and he wasn't just a hated Syrian, he was a commander of the Syrian army. If you treat that Bible as a life textbook, underline that phrase, not circle the name Nahum, circle the phrase, a commander of the army of the king of Syria. And then also, circle, highlight, and underline this. The Lord had given him victory. The Lord was the one who had given him victory. Now we read in verse two, another key character, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's uh, wife. Now let's just stop right there for a second. This gal has been kidnapped and she's not only been kidnapped by Naam's Nahum, uh, army, she's been brought into his household to be a servant of his wife. Now notice what she does. In verse 3, she said to her mistress, I hope this dude dies really soon. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Got the... <laughs> she said, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So we've got an enemy of Israel, doesn't even know God, attacks a nation, a people of God. And then we've got a Syrian girl who got caught, I mean a a Jewish girl who got caught in the backwash of other people's sin, completely innocent, and at an old enough age to know about the prophet that was in Israel, not just as a little kid. Then she's brought into the household of the one who's done all this damage and she's supposed to serve him. And instead of spitting in the coffee, she reflects the heart of God and what later on would be the teaching of Jesus, God in the flesh, telling us how we're to live. We're to return good for evil. We're to love our enemies. And we're gonna see, because this young girl, in a situation where so many of us would wave uh, you know, our fist at God and go, what's up? She did what God had called her to do. And because of this, an incredible story takes place and the Lord says, print it. This is not just good for now. This is good for all time. So now we pick it up in verse four. So Nahum went, and he he told his lord, the king, uh, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, well, go now. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. It's kind of like somebody who uh, has has run out of any help with the medical system here and decides to go down to Mexico to get alternative help and uh, medicine, and they take a few million dollars with them just to say, hey, Let's try it, so that's what he does. Well, uh, verse six says, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, and here's, the letter was pretty short and sweet. Here's what it said. When this letter reaches you, know that I, the king of Syria, have sent to you Naam, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. <laughs> Well, when the king of Israel got that, there must've been some kind of truce going on at this particular time. Syria was still stronger. And, and the guy had a bit of a panic attack, you know, like, oh my goodness, like, I'm gonna cure him. What am I gonna do with this? So in verse seven, it says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Listen, only consider, here's what's up. He's seeking to quarrel with me. He's trying to set up another battle. But when Elisha, the man of God, the prophet, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, hey, why have you torn your clothes? They're expensive. That's in the Hebrew. (laughs) Like, what'd you do that for? Just let him come on down to me, that he may know that there is a prophet, i.e. also a God, in Israel. So Nahum came with all of his horses and chariots, and things become rather humbling for this big man of power, prestige, and honor, and wealth. Remember, he's brought his whole entourage with him, he's bringing all of this money, uh, I mean, he's like ready there, and so he goes to the house of Elisha, and let's see what happens. It says he stood at the door of Elisha's house, probably rang the ring doorbell thing or whatever, you know, and is expecting Elisha to see him, and come and oh, look at this, and, and said he's just standing there, and then finally, Elisha sent a messenger to him. Catch that. Elisha didn't even come to the door to greet this incredibly important person. It's like, eh, you know, send one of the household servants. And then he tells him, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Nahum was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought. I mean, I had this whole thing figured out. Like, I cannot believe you didn't answer the door. You sent a servant, and you're telling me to go to that that stinking little Jordan River? Now, here's what you need to understand about the Jordan River. Uh, If you've ever been there, it's a weenie little river. There's nothing to it, and not only that, it's dirty and muddy because of the land it goes through. Uh, And yeah, there's a flood season. If you heard some of the Bible stories about crossing the Jordan, during flood season back then when they didn't have the dams and things that we do today to control the flow, it could get wild and crazy for a short period of time. But the rest of the time, you know, if you were a long jumper, there's places you could jump across that thing. (laughs) And he's going, what's up with this? He was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought he would say, number one, first of all, I thought he would come out to me. Number two, that he would stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And number three, he would wave his hand and place uh, uh, over the uh, place and he would cure the leper. I had it all figured out. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants uh, uh, came uh, near and they said to him, my father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Won't you uh, go ahead and do it? And has he actually said to you that if you do it, you can wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. And you can imagine what he's thinking. You know, time number one, this is stupid. Time number two, this, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm about ready to quit after six, Right. And he goes down for number seven. And he did it according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. But there's an even bigger miracle that takes place. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company. And he came and he stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Mark that, highlight that. That's the key to what God did here. An enemy of Israel who did not know God now stands up and says, behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I'm not gonna receive any of this. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Nahum said, well, if not, how about you uh, give me, uh, well, I'll just read it. If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads worth of earth. That's a lot of earth to bring back. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. I wanna bring back some earth from here. Set up a little altar place so that I only sacrifice to the true God that I now know exists. And then he says, uh, <clears throat> uh, by the way, though, I got a little problem. In this manner, may the Lord pardon your servant. Because when my master goes into the house of Remmon, the demon god, to worship there, and I'm, he's leaning on my arm, I bow down myself in that house. Like, I have to kind of do the bow down thing. And when I bow myself in the house of Remmon, Will the Lord pardon your servant in this matter? And I love Elisha's answer, no. (laughs) Die. Elisha goes, ah, go in peace. It's kind of like that little kid who's being punished, you know, made to stand on the corner, but he's sitting on the inside. You know, it's like, ah, bow down, you know better because you've come to know the God Most High. Now, the story goes on, you can read the rest of it this week, but for our purposes today, what we are going to take a look at is to step back and see what we can learn about when, where, and how God works. Now, catch this. I'm not talking today about how we can get our miracle. There's a little aspect of that. But what I'm really talking about, how, when, and where God works. Because would you agree with me? That can be rather confusing. I mean, one time you're praying and boom, there's the answer. The next time you're praying and it's as if the heavens are silent. Uh, you you uh, are, uh, your, your small group is seeking the Lord in some area for someone in your group and you pray and you pray and he never shows up. There's times where you and I look around and like, like, like God, you're not here for us and the wicked are prospering like like what's up with this? And so the question underneath it that fuels our faith, our rebellion, is a question of when, where, and how does God work? Because if we don't understand that, we're going to be angry at a God that is the greatest God of grace and mercy and love that has ever existed. And at other times, we're going to think that, well, it was my faith and my righteousness that created this thing that God did in this situation. And this story teaches us so much more than how to get your miracle because sometimes we get our miracle and sometimes we don't. If you're familiar with the famous passage in the book of Hebrews, the hall of faith, where all these stories are given of all these people who trusted God and all these great things happened. We got to remember at the backside, it says there was another group who were commended for their faith and nothing happened for them. They were tortured, and they had to live in caves, drive very old civics and all kinds of stuff that just it's like like God didn't come through like he did for some of the others. So what do we need to learn? The first thing is this, don't be surprised when God pursues and helps the wrong people. Don't be surprised when God pursues and helps the wrong people. Would you agree with me that we all have a tendency to put people into the good guy box or the bad guy box, right? And and we expect God will help the good guy box people, not the bad guy box people. And yet, in this story, that's not what happens. And and when you actually start reading through the Bible, what we begin to realize is the people we are quickest to write off are often the people God is quickest to help out. You see, there's this thing called grace and mercy, two stained glass words we use and often don't understand grace and mercy are unmerited because if I get grace I deserve, that's my wages, not my uh, something I didn't deserve. And if I deserve mercy, well, then it's not mercy. It's just the right, right way to respond. And what happens is we will often be on the receiving side of that and then once we've got it, we don't want anybody else in the boat. like, I get on, I got in on grace and mercy, but no, you've got to jump through all these hoops before you get in, because you know we don't want any more riffraff. I've already wrecked the boat, you know. <laughs> in Ezekiel chapter thirty three verse eleven, it says this: "Of the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked." That's the heart of God, and I love this little Syrian girl. That was her heart. Man, if I'm her, I'm not telling him about Elisha. I'm praying to God, bring him down. But she has the heart of God. She understands what's going on. You see, when it comes to God's enemies, we can have one of two responses the devil's response or the Lord's response. Satan is called the accuser, Jesus is called the savior. And my natural fleshly response, if I'm that little Syrian girl or the experiences in my life where one has done me wrong or, or one is the enemy of the things of God or whatever it would be, my thing is to pray damnation upon them. I see the enemies of God and I want to wipe them out, but the heart of God is not to wipe out his enemies, but to win over his enemies. And he's made you and I ambassadors of that message. He's left us here to be his hands and his feet, to be the people that are pursuing the enemies of God, not to wipe them out, but to win them over. And then the ultimate choice is, yes, it's going to be theirs, and we have a God of justice and a God of wrath, but he always starts out as a God of pursuit. This little Syrian girl doesn't get enough play when we look at this passage. Because it's only because she did the right thing that was so counterintuitive but so aligned with the heart of God that the story plays out and the purposes of God are carried out. We need to be aware of what I call the Jonah response. Some of you are familiar with the story. Those of you who aren't, Jonah was a prophet. There's a whole book in our Old Testament written about his story. And God had told him to go to wicked Nineveh to declare that God was going to destroy them. Now, you would think that he'd be pretty excited about that assignment. I get to go tell the enemies of God, dude, you're about done, and I'm so pleased to bring the message. But the thing was, Jonah the prophet knew the heart of God, and he figured if I go and tell them, you're all toast, God's about to come, and you're done, he said, oh my gosh, what if they repent? I know God's going to. Take care of them. I don't want to do that. So when God said go here, he got in a boat and he went the wrong direction. And a kind of fishy story comes out of that whole thing, okay? Uh, but, but, but the point is, you and I can often have that heart. Like, Lord, anybody but them. Like No, I don't want to do that. Like, they might listen to me. <laughs> and the Lord's saying, well, yeah, but that's what I did with you. I made a list of some of the wrong people that God pursued and blessed. <laughs> and the first one on my list is Larry Osborne. <laughs> and I would think the first so many of your lists would be you. You know, we so quickly forget what we've been saved from and delivered from. How about Abraham? We know Abraham is the father of our faith, don't we? Ah, oh, great Abraham, you know, teach that in the Sunday school classes, you know. well. You do realize before Abraham was the father of our faith, he was an idolater. There was nothing special about him. God came to him and said, hey, if you will leave Ur of the Chaldees and leave everything behind and come and follow me and trust me enough to do what I'm saying, I'm going to do all these great miracles for you. It wasn't God look, kind of looked in the Ur of Chaldees and said, dude, that guy is really pretty good. He's a great number one draft pick. I think I'll go for him. Yeah. I think that's often the mindset I have and, and we can have. They, God looks down. He knows time. He says, ah, that one's going to be really good. I'll pick him. No, he says, that one's really lame. I'm going to show my glory in picking him. The Ninevites of Jonah Day I mentioned. How about Nebuchadnezzar? Babylon's the most wicked city and state that has ever been in all of history, according to the, uh, the Bible. The angels cry out, fallen, fallen is Babylon when Jesus finally returns. Not Nazi Germany, not all kinds of other things. This guy attacked Jerusalem, destroyed it. He uh, attacked the temple. He took things from the temple of God, brought him back to the temple of Baal, his demon God, and put him in there to mock the true God. He took a bunch of people like Daniel uh, away. And yet later on, Daniel serves him so well, like the servant girl did, that he kept getting promoted to the highest point, that he can explain the real message of God, and real God to Nebuchadnezzar, and he worships the God most high, the sinners of Jesus' day. Or how about Paul? Now when we talk about the Apostle Paul, we always call him, help me out, the what? The Apostle, okay, come on, help me out, wake up. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, the what? Apostle Paul. So we'll be calling a passage, well the Apostle Paul says in Romans or the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, I wonder why we never do it this way. Well, this particular passage in Philippians was written by the murderer, blasphemer, and persecutor Paul. Never heard anybody call him that. But that's what he was, on his way to throw more Christians in prison when God showed up and said, you have no idea dude, you're gonna write Bible. Who would have guessed? Here's a sobering passage. Listen to it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And anytime you see in the Bible, do not be deceived in the New Testament, that means most people don't get this. So he says, now, understand, this is counterintuitive, but this is the truth. Unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God, and let me tell you who that is. Anybody who's been sexually immoral an idolater, an adulterer, men who practice homosexually, anybody who's been a thief, or greedy, or drunk, or reviled, or swindled, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're going to hell. Okay, let's go home. All depressed. I mean, you read that. If you're honest, that ain't about them. That's about us, right? But here's what I love, the next verse. And such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified which means set apart you were justified made right in the eyes of the Lord in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God you see grace and mercy really are unmerited and when we get that our grace and mercy is unmerited we can be like that little Syrian girl And then God works through us how when and where does God show up When we do those, I mean how insignificant would you have thought she was if you were looking at the beginning of this story? That's us. But we've gotta play our role and then God shows up. Second principle I get out of this passage is this. The ultimate purpose of a miracle is our holiness, not our happiness. I've always naturally assumed when I'm seeking God to do something because he's a good, good father that he wants me to be happy. But if I go back and remember when my kids were young, I was trying to be a good, good father but everything I asked them to do didn't cause them to go, oh, good, good father, (laughs) right? You see, sometimes a good, good father is doing things that are for our benefit later, but a bit of our misery right now. You might wanna jot this phrase down and mull on it a little bit, because it's pretty powerful. Because I I, I think we just don't notice it. Jesus' miracles did not follow a changed life. They inspired a changed life. I've always thought the more righteous I get, the more God's gonna show up and win every battle for me. Because grace and mercy are really something I've earned. But the truth is, Jesus didn't go into town, preach the hard messages he preached, and, and then okay, y'all come forward, you ready to follow me, and then pull them aside to a separate meeting, and all those who had made the change say, okay, I'll heal you, I'll heal you. No, he healed people. It didn't follow the changed life, it inspired the changed life, and that's exactly what happened in Nam's life, right? Nam wasn't like, okay, believe in the God Most High, go to the Jordan River and do this. No, just go and do this stupid thing. And he did it, and he suddenly went, oh my gosh! Now I know, now I believe. Because the most important miracle in our life is not the, the solution to our current problem or the healing of our current disease. It's a forgiveness of our sins. Our holiness is what matters. All the things that pile upon us now, they don't really matter 100 years from now at all. I think when it, like in, in my mind, the greatest problem that you can have is your doctor just gave you a death sentence. Would you all agree? There's lots of problems, but they said, I'm sorry, we look at this, you've got two months to live. That's the biggest problem. Well, the Bible has a few stories and one of Jesus' stories where that problem was fixed. It's a guy named Lazarus. Maybe you know the story. It's an amazing story. Once again, how God shows up, but different than we think. They come to Jesus and say, hey, your friend is dying. Will you come and heal him, basically? And so he says, oh yeah, I'll come. And then he wastes two days until he's dead. And then he shows up. They run out to him and say, if you'd been here, he had been alive. He says, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Open the tomb and, and let's see what happened." They go, he stinketh. They go, ah, just open the tomb anyway. Humor me. And Lazarus walks out. Would you agree that's the most amazing prayer answer you could ever get for Lazarus, who thought he had a no, for his family is okay? But guess what? He's not here. He'd be dead. He was brought back to life temporarily. All the things we think are most important are not as important as our holiness. And that's why God, you know, they got so mad at Jesus uh, uh, in uh, uh, a passage uh, because he said that uh, in all of Israel there were lots of people with leprosy and the only one who got healed was Naam. And they got so ticked off. That he was teaching that in a synagogue. They got so ticked off, they chased him out of it and they tried to kill him. But what he was simply saying is no, holiness is what matters. This is how I got this guy holy. But nobody else got that, but they got what was needed most. Third principle God's help comes on his terms or not at all. God's help comes at his terms or not at all. Nahum's pride and assumption almost cost him his miracle. Are you kidding? stinking little Jordan River? You won't even come out and talk to me? Like, this is not so. When we think we know how God should work, we often miss out on how God does work. Have you ever done that? I sure have. I got it all figured out how God's supposed to work. And then when he doesn't, I can shake my fist at God or what's up with this? Because when I, I have God all figured out, like Nam did, those three things he thought he would do, what happens is we, when we go there, we miss out on how God does work because we're so dialed in on how we think he should work. God is never found on the path of disobedience be it high-handed disobedience or partial obedience, well, well, just a couple things, Lord. God doesn't show up in the path of disobedience. He might show up in the path of ignorance and not knowing, like in Nahum's case. But my high-handed, well, I know, but I'm better? No. If Nahum had not done what the prophet had said, guess what? Nahum doesn't have the healing that he is seeking. But here's the next one. When it comes to walking in faith and playing our part, we seldom need more faith. We usually just need more obedience. All my life I was told I need more faith and so I try to screw it up, you know? I just, okay, I believe, I believe, I can picture, you know, we're in a drought, so like I'll go buy an umbrella and that will impress God. Or just like, you know, every little bit of doubt or thing, get it out, get it out. God can't work if I don't just get more confidence and get rid of all sense of doubt. Would you agree with me? That's what we think of faith. And the problem is the English language is more so that faith means something that the biblical word faith does in the context of the Bible. Because in the English language, it means positive thinking. So your kid's little league team is down six runs in the last inning. You tell them you got to have faith. Like they still lose by six runs. Right? I can't change reality, and, and we've got, I always had this idea that I can't have doubt. Here's what I wanna help you understand. The biblical concept of faith can be filled with doubt, as I'm gonna show you in just a moment. Because not, what matters is that not more faith and confidence, just more obedience, because here's why. Here's the biblical definition of faith. Might wanna jot it down. Faith is trusting God enough to do what he says. Whether I think it's silly, whether I think it won't work, whatever it is, whether I'm filled with doubt, none of those things matter. If I trust Him enough to do what He says, absolutely confident it won't work, He'll He'll go. I love that faith. Let me give you two powerful examples of this. In Luke chapter 17, there's a famous phrase about a mustard seed of faith being able to move a mountain. So when I would read that passage or hear that out of its context, I would go, okay, I just need to stir up a mustard seed more of faith. But actually, a mustard seed was the smallest thing they knew, it was their word picture, their metaphor for tiniest of tiny. You know, like an electron or a you know, smaller than that or we, co- we nano this or that today. That would be, back then, a mustard seed, they couldn't think of anything smaller. So in the context of that passage, Jesus has been telling his followers, you need to forgive and more. Just keep on, keep on. And he gives a number that they kids can't imagine. And so one of them cries out, give us more faith. Then we could do it. And Jesus' answer is, it only takes a mustard seed of faith to move a mountain. You can forgive. Just do it. Quit telling me you'll obey if you got more faith. Just do what I said to do. See, a mustard seed of faith is tiny. He's not telling you have more, he's just telling you act on the tiny bit you got. And then the other powerful story that helps us understand the kind of faith that God shows up in is found in Acts chapter 12 and it, it, it's a, a prayer meeting. And what had happened is the king had killed uh, uh, James, beheaded him, and he got a lot of uh, uh, approval uh, for doing that so he decided, well, I'll kill Peter tomorrow. So Peter is in prison and he's supposed to be beheaded tomorrow. So they have an all night prayer meeting and they're praying that the Lord would deliver Peter and lo and behold, he does. And he goes to the house where the prayer meeting is at and he knocks on the door and a little servant girl named Rhoda opens the door and looks and goes, ah. And she's so freaked out by his presence, she runs in and tells the prayer meeting, stop, stop. Peter's here. And being people with no doubt and great faith, they all started high-fiving one another and saying, I knew God would do this. Nope, when you actually read the story, you know what they said? It can't be. And then she says, no, it is Peter. And they said, well, it must be his ghost. I guess he didn't answer our prayer. Like, I can have that kind of faith. I don't know about you, but I'm in. They were filled with doubt, so much so that when God answered, her, they said, I oh, guess it didn't happen. But they obeyed anyway. When, where, and how does God show up? In our obedience. We think we're insignificant. It doesn't matter. You're just a servant girl that was kidnapped, servant in a household. No, that act of the little thing of loving your enemies good for evil made a Bible. A group of people who prayed absolutely certain that God could not answer the prayer, got their prayer answered. That's when, how, and where God shows up. You know, I'm a geographical moron. And uh, my, my wife kind of knows the air. So if there isn't, in San Diego where I live, you know, mountains and ocean, I have no clue where I am. Okay, and especially when Nancy, my wife, is with me. It's like, why should I, we're with friends or whatever, why should I waste any brain cells figuring out where I am when she knows? And so, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm known for getting in the left-hand turn and turn lane, and she'll go, well, like, why are you doing that? I don't know, the car in front of me did. You know, I'm just like, <laughs> oblivious. So, as you can imagine, when I travel, and I actually get places and come home, She's shocked, mildly disappointed as well, but shocked. And what I've learned though, is there's these things called GPS, right? They're on our phones and whatever. And and here's how I get home. Here's how I got here today. I listen to the little lady in the box. And even when I'm sure she has no clue what she's doing I do what she says. And there have been a few times, I remember once going to the airport where it was absolutely, there was no way she was right. So I trusted my own understanding. And I came that close to missing the flight. She's always right. Now, early Apple, half the time she was right, but she's always right. And here's what I've learned. I get where I want to go if I listen to her even when it makes no sense. And that's a word picture of listening to the prophet, of listening to the word. When, where, and how does God show up? That's how. Father, would you take the things that we've looked at and would you speak to each of us individually, not about someone else, but about ourselves. An area where maybe today you're encouraging us to just keep on as we're keeping on, or you're correcting us as something we need to do or in an attitude we need to change towards someone else. But Lord, would you encourage all of us through the power of your spirit and the power of your word to be men and women who are willing to dunk our bodies seven times in a dirty, stinking little river. Do whatever you say so we can get wherever you're taking us to your glory and fame.